I am Dr. Tasha Browning, a trauma therapist, and this is The Trauma Perspective. In this podcast, we will discuss various topics surrounding mental health, trauma work, trauma healing, and explore the lived experiences of trauma survivors. Be warned, trauma is a dirty topic. It is thick with hurt and it reveals some of the ugliest sides of human existence. These discussions may not be appropriate for all listeners. So take a breath, stay present, and let's discuss the trauma perspective. This is the Trauma Perspective, and this is the podcast on sex. Um, Actually, the sex and trauma connection, because we do know that um, in incidents of trauma and traumatic stress and the lived experiences of people, some um, of the things that they experience and some of the traumas they experience are because of sex and all the issues and challenges and, and problems surrounding it. So today I have a wonderful guest that I am really interested in understanding and getting some of her perspective um, on the way in which she works with individuals with um, sex addiction and with um, sexual trauma um, and how she uh, works to help them with these experiences um, and her clinical approaches to these experiences. So Brid, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Hello, thank you so much for having me. My name is Bryn Deary. I uh, am a licensed marriage and family therapist and a CSAT, which is a certified sex addiction therapist. I currently work at The Refuge, a healing place in Nakalawaha, Florida, and I work at a residential level of care with um, primarily trauma with some substance. So Brynn, out of all the areas that you could have chosen to do mental health work, trauma work, clinical work, why is sex addiction and sex something that you chose to approach? Uh, Generally speaking, sex is something that people have a really difficult time talking about. Mm -hmm. It's still a very taboo piece of culture and... Um, for whatever reason, either because of their own traumas or because of how they were raised or messages they may have received. Um, Sexuality is something that a lot of people really just aren't comfortable divulging either to a therapist or even some therapists struggle to talk about this. So there is a, a, a need there. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I have found too that um, any issue in regards to sex, even when they're in the room with us, they're therapists, and we're supposed to be the person that they're supposed to be you know, be able to be comfortable with and, and uh, disclose things and feel safe, there's still that boundary and there's still that, um, that hesitation to really talk about these, these hard topics of sex that they may be um, facing or issues they may be dealing with in their sexual lives. Sure. And because of the discomfort, um, they'll often sort of accidentally come to this don't ask, don't tell, where a therapist may not be entirely comfortable bringing it up, and a client's not entirely comfortable bringing it up, and then there are these really important areas of people's experiences that just aren't being looked at therapeutically. Absolutely. So how do you think trauma gets involved in all this? Like, how do we start to see um, trauma wearing its head in people's sexual lives? Well, sexuality is such an integral part of the human experience that our uh, our drives, our sexual drives, are already a part of us by the time we're born. 
Um, and the most common denominator for sexual addiction is not, in fact, sexual abuse, but emotional neglect. And because of the correlation between the two, what we often have is a lot of people starting to self-soothe sexually right around the age where they would start to be, um, you know, in, in a lot of the sexual addiction cases, you have people who are self-soothing with masturbation. Um, and in other cases, when children have actually been sexualized um, younger, now they have been taught how to be sexual and they are now um, not only continuing in those patterns, teaching it to other children, but now they're also self-soothing sexually. Before you go any further, I think you need to definitely get some clarity on something that you said, because a lot of people really think that these sexual issues can stem from sexual abuse mm -hmm. and not from the emotional neglect, like you said. Can, can you explain the difference in those two? Sure. It's sort of like an inverse converse thing where, you know, everybody who's asleep has their eyes closed, but not everybody whose eyes are closed is asleep. So generally speaking, most perpetrators of sexual abuse are in fact victims, but there is a very vast population of victims who do not become sexual perpetrators. Um, and with sex addiction, there is sometimes a correlation, sometimes not. Generally speaking, by the time someone becomes an offender, there is a sex addiction component, but again, most sex addicts are not offenders. And so where does the emotional part come in? The emotional neglect ultimately, um, because parental attention is literally life-giving. You know, the analogy I always give to clients is if, if, I'm, if I'm a cat and I have six nipples and seven kittens, you know, the, that seventh kitten is up a creek. Mm -hmm. So um, because parental attention and approval is quite literally life-giving, um, we, we do not feel safe and our nervous system doesn't feel safe if we don't have it, if we are, if we are perceiving that we have been neglected or abandoned. So in the instance of a kid that's sort of been left on their own because a parent is dealing with addiction or is just not present for whatever reason, um, they may start self-soothing with masturbation or they may start self-soothing with porn or they may start um, you know, trying to get those attention needs met with other people, which then puts them either at risk for sexual perpetration, uh, for to be sexually abused, or it gets them sexually active younger. Um, there's a variety of ways people use, I mean, not only in childhood, but in adulthood as well, where people use sexuality to self-soothe. So we're seeing this start as children. What about the people who don't really experience like levels of sexual abuse or, um, you know, sexual addiction or, or until they're like adults? What about, what about those people? So now you're talking about the difference between PTSD and CPTSD. Um, PTSD, of course, is post-traumatic stress disorder. CPTSD is complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, the, the, the best way that I can describe the difference is I sort of describe PTSD as, you know, there's a, a train chugging along and then something happens and they go into the tunnel and they remember that baseline of what daylight looks like so they know what to expect and then they come out of it and everything's fine. Um, that's PTSD, where somebody might have moved through a normal developmental process and then they experience a trauma that throws them for a loop and the goal is to then return them to that previous baseline. With CPTSD, you know, rather than a train entering a tunnel of darkness, it's sort of like being born in the tunnel and you've never seen light. It's a rumor and, you know, people talk about it and it looks like other people have it, but you've never had it. So you may not have a frame of reference. And this is why with a lot of um, clients who have been abused since day one, they often present initially as less acute because they had no um, 
no illusion of comfort and safety that was then dashed. They sort of grew up um, on a nervous system level as if they were in a war zone, if not literally in a war zone. So um, they tend to not present as acutely immediately, but when you start digging it, their entire life has been um, essentially designed around feeling safe. And, you know, the goal is to them, you know, convince them that the light at the end of the tunnel is real, and if they work towards it, they can get there. But of course, it's more difficult to have that kind of hope for normalcy when you've never actually experienced it before. So, and you mean as an adult, right? You mean yeah. as an adult. Okay. So, let's break this down. If I was someone who was a walking wounded, and um, I didn't know what this looked like, right? What does this look like walking down the street for the everyday person who may not be able to process this on a very clinical level? What does a person look like walking around with these feelings, these thoughts, these, this lack of understanding safety, this lack of having safety in their body? What does this look like? You're talking about someone with complex PTSD? CPTSD. Um, there is um, a very almost quiet acceptance of worthlessness. And, you know, with, with people with PTSD, there's sort of this new searing, burning, I feel so worthless, you know, they've taken everything from me. Whereas with CPTSD, it's almost this, well, yeah, I'm worthless. I've always been worthless. Like, what's, what's the big deal? You know, this, there's nothing new here. Um, so they tend to be relatively functional right up until they're not. Um, they have, generally speaking, they don't, they may not necessarily know immediately how bad the abuse was. For people who endured, um, you know, overtly horrifying sexual abuse as children, they tend to know just by virtue of the fact that culturally that's not something people talk about. But with um, covert incest, which is not, it's exactly what it sounds like, it's not overt incest, but with covert incest and with mild, quote unquote, you know, of course, we're talking about you know, respectively mild, and none of it's mild, but respectively um, mild sexual boundary violations with children or within the family versus the, the overt stuff that, you know, on the other extreme end of it. So generally speaking, a lot of them don't know. Um, and what we often see is a lot of children in long-term sexual relationships who don't realize that other children aren't having these relationships with their family members or with their parents or with their friends' parents. And then they start, you know, hearing, you know, words that teenagers use to describe, you know, slut or whatever. And um, they start putting it together that if nobody else did this and I did, what does that say about me? And they start internalizing this as being a reflection of them as opposed to a reflection of the abuse that was perpetrated against them. And they tend to internalize, I'm so sick, I'm so perverted, I can't believe I did this. And, you know, it's a very quiet acceptance of worthlessness as a result. And it will be stuffed or it will be repressed and people will do their best to sort of avoid those concepts and those topics. Um, and there tends to be a lot of repression with this versus... Um, sort of the more acute immediate PTSD where there tends to be a lot more um, immediate flashbacks and associations and pseudo seizures. Um, CPTSD, you start to see some of that during trauma work because you're uncovering a lot of it, but there tends to be this developmental layering of narratives and denial and not entirely understanding. And, you know, one of the one of the interesting things that happens is, you know, when most clients first admit um, 
a lot of what they often say is, you know, well, my, my childhood was perfect. My trauma happened after. And, you know, when someone comes into a group and says that, I'll, I'll make the joke, ah, you just got out of medical, didn't you? You're, you're new here. Welcome. And then, of course, by the time they leave, they realize that there were all of these dysfunctional dynamics as, you know, as there are t to a certain degree in any family. It's not like the perfect family doesn't have any dysfunctional dynamics. We're all humans and flawed and imperfect. Um, but, you know, it's a grayscale. It's not a, it was either happy or dysfunctional. You know, there's certain dysfunctionalities in certain ways and not others. Um, but depending on how intense or how dangerous or how immediately um, dysfunctional the dynamics were, will play a, a large role in how that person develops into adulthood. And so these adults that um, you see these differences in with PTSD and CPTSD, um, when they really start to gain more awareness about um, what has really happened to them, um, especially the ones with CPTSD, not the ones necessarily with PTSD because that's usually associated with a, an actual event, um, a singular event or a couple different events, but it's more event um, oriented where CPTSD seems like it is layered in over a developmental span. Um, who has the biggest um, problem with adjusting to these to these new realities and new identities um, of what went wrong or what went right with um, their life? So that's an interesting question that I have a lot of opinions about and you know, depending on how deeply we want to go into this today, this could be a whole podcast in and of itself. Give me one. Like, give me the first one that comes to mind. Men. Men. Okay. Men. Um, generally speaking, you know, just statistically, men are more likely to complete suicide. And that is not a coincidence. Um, when, and you mean when they start really understanding the trauma that they've had and how it's affected their life? They have a harder time coping with the distress that comes from understanding. They have a harder time um, being able to have a flexible view of how they operate within that paradigm and what it says and means about them. They mm -hmm. often have far more limited support systems, um, emotional, spiritual. Um, it's a lot more isolated. You know, this, you know, the line I always give people is, you know, toxic men are not the enemy. Toxic masculinity is the enemy and it hurts everybody. And it is absolutely hurting men as well. So, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, especially in, in trauma treatment, really struggle with the gender of their abuser. And there are absolutely female perpetrators, um, 100% huge, huge misunderstanding that, you know, oh, women are safe. Um, you know, there are absolutely female perpetrators, but there are a lot of male perpetrators, to be sure. And um, there tends to be this narrative of, you know, you know, men, and they're all the same and dangerous. And it's like, there are, there are men who are victimized, and there are boys who are victimized, and they, there are far less resources for the men and the boys who are victimized. Um, you know, they're more likely to get a, a pat on the back or a congratulations or a why didn't you like it, what are you gay, um, as opposed to a girl who would, you know, we hope, you know, in, in modern mainstream culture would, you know, this is awful, you know, the arrests would be made, she would be taken seriously, her friends would probably be there, they'd be crying, there'd be hugging. Um, the idea of a 16-year-old boy feeling victimized after 
sex and going to his friends and, and getting hugs and support, um, it's still pretty foreign. And, you know, this sort of long-term stuffing of emotions um, really contributes to the isolation that winds up contributing to the kind of depression that makes men slightly less reachable than women. Less reachable. That's a, that's a very particular word. Yeah. Why less reachable? Because it takes a certain, you know, it's sort of like you have to know how to read to teach yourself. You have to know how to read English to teach yourself another language. So if you, if you have the emotional language, if you have a little bit of emotional IQ where you're able to express yourself emotionally to a certain degree, you know, then therapy can be really, really, really helpful. But if you were taught that any emotion other than hungry, angry, or horny makes you weak and, um, or was a liability. And this is, this is the case too, you know, even if, even for, you know, for women, um, or any gender in between, the idea that any kind of boundary setting is, you know, considered disrespectful growing up. Um, and that any kind of negative response is considered disrespectful. So, you know, if crying is talking back, if any kind of expression of pain is complaining or, or guilt tripping in the family of origin, then, you know, children will learn very early on to hide their negative responses to things because they're not going to get compassion. They're not going to get a kiss on the boo-boo and a band-aid. They're going to be shamed for falling in the first place, or they're going to be, you know, have something taken from them as a punishment. So, um, or they're going to be insulted or called weak. Um, so they will stuff those feelings and not have any idea, not only how to express them, but even to recognize when they're taking place, they just sort of get shoved down. So to then expect adult men suffering with you know, debilitating depression and PTSD to then expect them to be able to verbalize, to identify and to verbalize what it is they're experiencing. Um, you know, if they were able to do that, they probably wouldn't be as depressed as they are. So at that point, it really requires, you know, it's the difference between teaching a 50 year old to read and, and teaching a six year old to read. It's a lot harder when you're 50. So, um, you know, there's actually an issue when we talk about sexual addiction, sexual trauma, um, when we talk about anything in regards to sex in people's lives, um, that I feel there's a big spiritual component to it. And uh, when that is disrupted, um, that uh, there's something about sex that can be very injuring to the soul or to the spirit um, when people experience those levels of abuse or if people just have disruptions in what um, they know to be true about their sexuality or how they experience sex or um, how they relate it to their life. Um, and I'm wondering, do you run into any of that in therapy? You mean like a correlation between spirituality and sexuality? I mean, the way in which, um, the trauma of sex can impact someone's spirit. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, and again, this is, it's all complex, but <laughs> I think the easiest way to say it is that, um, spirituality is such a complex subject. Even that word seems too simple for it, but spirituality is such an incredibly complicated experience, um, on so many different levels that, um, I think when a lot of people, especially people who have not 
you know, this is sort of the opposite. So as opposed to people with CPTSD, I think a lot of people with PTSD who had relatively normal upbringings, when they are then faced with a life-altering trauma seemingly out of the blue, because of course they've never coped with anything that horrifying before, it, it sort of shatters this illusion that was able to develop as a result of never having a very childlike conceptualization of spirituality challenged. So this very sort of two-dimensional idea of, you know, you know, if I do things right today, then I'll be rewarded tomorrow. And, you know, this idea of this sort of immediate gratification of spirituality. And, you know, there's, there's this, this person with this certain haircut on a chair in the clouds and, and he's watching and he's going to reward, you know, this very childlike idea where God and Santa are kind of the same thing. You know, it's this, he sees you when you're sleeping thing. And I think we get very comfortable with this parentified notion of a higher power so that when that sort of very comfortable childlike acceptance of our own spirituality is completely thrown for a loop um, when an event happens that is not consistent with our idea of this um, omnipotent parent figure that protects us and insulates us from bad things as a reward for our goodness, our inherent goodness. Um, I think that that, again, that's a very childlike, you know, I got these presents because I was good this year. And I think when something horrifying happens, people throw the baby out with the bathwater. And it challenges that preconceived notion they had of, of what, you know, their God or their spirituality did for their lives. And then they say, well, clearly there can't be one because, you know, the God that I had conceptualized of would never let something like this happen. And I think, um, you know, superficially, what a reasonable conclusion to come to. Um, unfortunately, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And it, you know, if you're going to make a decision like throwing out your spirituality, just as a human being, you know, regardless of your beliefs, but just as a human being, I think you owe yourself some more explanation just by virtue of the fact that it's such an integral piece of the human experience. Um, especially if you were someone who got strength and support from a faith or a practice previously. And if you were someone who um, got a lot of strength um, from their religion, then having this traumatic event take place and, and make you question your beliefs, not only are you now suffering from the trauma, you're not able to recover from the trauma because you're not, you know, turning to God as you understood him. Not only that, but you're also dealing with the loss of the faith. So now you're dealing with two traumas and you are removing, you know, that, that second piece which could have helped you heal from the first piece. So yeah, I think the spiritual, on a, on a much simpler level, people lose hope, people lose faith, people lose the thing that made them keep wanting to move forward and everything they thought they knew about the world and God and the way it works um, is now completely up for grabs and they're making new sense and new narratives out of everything. And that's essentially the crux of what trauma resolution is. It's assigning new narratives to events. How common is it for someone to have that kind of experience after a sexual trauma, like a rape or um, uh, a violation or even violence? Extremely common, especially if um, they were extraordinarily strong in their faith and hadn't had any trauma previously. That's where you tend to see it's a heartbreak. It, it, it really registers as, you know, God has betrayed me or God never cared or, you know, I invented this person who cared about me. And not only that, but it's seen as further 
further evidence that they're worthless. Even God doesn't love me. Even God won't protect me. Um, and they sort of interpret that as this, this further proof that the universe has absolutely no plan for them and that they are absolutely worthless. Um, as opposed to, of course, zooming out and, you know, taking the opposite stance, which is why, why would a loving higher power you know, what is the purpose? What, what can I gain out of this? Is there, is there anything about this? If this was custom designed to teach me something, what is it exactly? What should I be seeing from this? How can I handle this? And I think um, expanding our understanding of, you know, what spirituality is, I think we can make room for a, a, a strong faith in whatever form that looks like and accepting the reality of trauma as it exists. You know, in all the ways in which you speak about um, trauma and um, the different diagnoses that come out of trauma and um, how it's conceptualized when you're working with people, I'm wondering, um, what's the biggest difference between, like, sex addiction, sexual trauma, you know, or someone walking in the door with just having some issues surrounding sex? Sure, that's a great question, and um, there's a lot of misunderstandings and myths about sex addiction. You know, I think so. Let's start with the one. Yeah, with the what? Let's start with sex addiction then, because okay. I know that's the one that everybody probably sure has the most. You know, because from movies and the way that it's portrayed in the media, I know that's not the way it shows up in a uh, therapy session. Absolutely, um, and the reality is that sex addiction has so much more in common with an eating disorder than it does say with a, uh, a substance dependency because, um, you know, we can live without alcohol. We can live without meth or heroin. We cannot live without human intimacy. And, um, that's something that like food, we have to find a happy medium, a way to be able to experience these things in a healthy way. And in some ways that's a lot more challenging than simply saying, all I have to do is not X, Y, or Z, which of course is simple, but it's not easy. And in the same sense, this is a lot, it's not quite as simple. Um, you know, telling, telling someone, well, just don't drink a beer. Of course, drinking, not drinking a beer is of course incredibly difficult for an alcoholic, but the goal is simple. Whereas telling somebody with an eating disorder, just eat healthy, they may want to and, and not have any idea how to actually do that. So the same thing with, um, with sex addiction. If you have grown up and you have CPTSD and you have no idea what healthy sexuality is going to look like. So if you've been sexually abused since you were a toddler, um, of course your sexuality is going to be altered. Of course it's going to be changed. And um, in trying to figure out what's normal, um, I think people have a lot of questions. And, and ultimately I think the most important answer is that if there is no impairment, if there is no distress, there is no diagnosis. So you cannot be a sex addict just because you like something kinky or you have a fetish or you feel shame about um, maybe some of the things that you like. Um, you know, it's not as simple as being messed up. It's not as simple as liking sex too much or being too promiscuous. Um, you know, too, T-O-O, of course, is incredibly subjective. And what is too much for one person is not enough for somebody else. So ultimately, in order to not pathologize, um, you know, either kink or other forms of sexuality that don't look like what we've always sort of 
thought of as what sexuality is supposed to look like. In order to not pathologize these things, we have to wait for a problem, for a negative consequence. And, you know, again, whether you're talking about substance abuse or any other kind of addiction, this is how that's diagnosed, is the presence of negative consequences that remain ignored. So if someone is not having any negative consequences and they're not having any distress, um, then an addiction really can't be diagnosed. And just to be clear, when we talk about distress or shame, there's a really big difference between um, I have distress because um, my wife knows I'm cheating and I have distress because it really upsets me that this kind of thing turns me on. And that's something that we see very, 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 very frequently as a lot of people whose sexual templates and arousal templates have been altered due to sexual abuse. And now what it is that turns them on um, is either a trauma repetition or it's very much like the abuse that they endured. And they have so much shame about this that um, that is what winds up being the distress. Not that they're actually doing behaviors that are causing problems, but because they have this narrative of I'm so dirty or I'm so bad or I can't believe I like this, that they wind up interfering in their own sexual um, lives because they are so horrified at what it is that turns them on. So we definitely can say that sexual addiction is going to be a disruption in somebody's quality of life. But you know what? It, it sounds like we're also doing a little bit of chicken before the egg or the egg before the chicken because um, I need to understand, like, sexual abuse. Uh, is Does sexual addiction come out of sexual abuse? Or it is can. there addiction first and then abuse? Um, sounds like it could be both it, too. It, it definitely could be both. And, um, you know, as previously stated, emotional neglect is such a big component of sexual abuse, of a uh, sexual addiction that you don't necessarily need to have experienced sexual abuse to become a sex addict. addict. Mm, and the same is true the other way around. Yeah. And, the, and there are trauma survivors, uh, even sexual trauma survivors who don't, who do not struggle with sexual addiction. So there's, you know, there's a sort of a Venn diagram and an overlap where people have, you know, one or both um, or neither, but it's not as simple as to say everybody that has one has the other. Absolutely. So now if we just want to talk about like just presenting in therapy, just to make sure we cover everything with just someone with a sexual issue, how is that different from like sexual abuse or sexual addiction? How is what different from sexual abuse? Just presenting with a, a regular issue. Like maybe I, all of a sudden now, um, I'm coming to therapy because I no longer um, uh, experience joy with sex. Well, you know, this sort of goes back to the first question you asked at the beginning of all this, which is, um, I don't think... I don't think it's safe to trust that somebody presenting saying I don't experience joy with sex, I don't think it's, we can just assume that that person hasn't had sexual trauma. Um, and again, that is so prevalent and it is still so taboo to talk about um, and it's still um, very repressed for a lot of people that my first questions with somebody that would present talking about a lack of joy with sex is let's talk about sexual trauma and your associations with sex and your earliest memories of sex. and. Generally speaking, um, it can be pretty useful, useful information when resolving any sexual problems, regardless of how, you know, pathological it is to understand people's first sexual experiences and understandings and, and those first um, 
the, you know, the, the earliest memory of learning about sex or what it means and maybe who you saw doing it and with whom and, and, and the conclusions that you came to about it um, and about the world in general and about yourself in relation to it. So is it possible to show up in therapy with, um, you know, maybe some issues surrounding sex, um, maybe a change in life, uh, maybe um, a new disability that's um, involving your sex life? Is it possible to show up in therapy um, with just an issue like that and it not be associated with um, a trauma? Oh, 100%. I mean, you're, you're talking about a, a, a physical, biological being. This could be biomedical. It isn't even necessarily psychological. I mean, you know, it could be psychological and not have anything to do with abuse. It could be, you know, performance anxiety. It could be, you know, I don't like the way my body looks anymore because I'm aging or mm -hmm. I think my spouse isn't attracted to me anymore. None of that is, you know, necessarily trauma stemming, it could also be as simple as, um, you know, low testosterone or maybe somebody needs a prostate exam. It's n it may not even be psychological at all. There's so many factors that go into sexual problems. So Bryn, where do we start this conversation about treatment and healing? Where do we start the conversation about how to approach, um, working with sexual addictions when we're in therapy? Figure out what the problem is. What is the problem that you want resolved? What is the goal? The individual? The yeah. patient? Mm -hmm. they, I mean, they're going to figure out their problem. No, the patient and the client. It's about establishing a goal. It's about saying, why are you presenting? What is the problem that you're here to solve? What if they don't even know that they have a problem? Why would they be presenting in therapy if... They didn't know they had a problem. We, you know, we've gotten, we get plenty of clients sometimes that come to therapy and, you know, uh, come in thinking that they're okay. They may be, be, feel a little depressed, you know, or I have a little bit of anxiety, you know, but I'm okay. I don't feel like I have any problems. What do they do? What do you do when you have people that come to therapy and they really just don't feel like that, you know, they need to be here for what's going on with them. And your, your space is a little bit different because you're in residential. Okay. That's, that, I think okay. that's what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, and that sort of gives me some leverage that gives me some room to work with. Cause I'm saying, you know, you're at a residential level of treatment and you're telling me that, that everything's okay. What did the admissions team see to make you, um, actually wind up on our property? What did you, what brought you here? What was the original event that made you seek treatment in the first place? So something must have gone wrong or you wouldn't be here. Okay. So after you work with the client on figuring out what the problem is, what's your next step? Figuring out, um, first and foremost, what they have already tried to solve this problem. And generally speaking, when people sort of, you know, take shots in the dark at solving the problem, they can often exacerbate it and make it worse or lose hope that it can get better. And sometimes some of the things people do to try and, you know, solve the problem or assess it can exacerbate it. Um, you know, I've worked with people who experience, um, what's called a flat line. So when a sex addict, um, you know, traditionally what they'll do is, you know, they're asked to stop masturbating for 90 days. Um, and they will experience what is known as a flat line where they just don't have any sexual impulse at all. They feel like they're asexual and it's totally normal for that period of time. There's, you know, websites, dedicated to helping people cope with that kind of stuff. And again, this goes back to the toxic masculinity thing. It's incredibly difficult because of the way the culture exists for 
men to still see themselves and validate themselves as men when they're not feeling like thriving, virile, you know, beings. Um, and I think that's something, you know, people, especially men, really struggle with during that flatline period. Um, and one of the biggest mistakes they can do, especially, um, a lot of the reasons why people seek treatment and go into that 90-day abstinence period is because they're experiencing erectile dysfunction, um, either due to age or biology or psychology, or what is very common is uh, porn-induced erectile dysfunction. So porn addiction has obviously skyrocketed, um, first since the internet and then since COVID. Um, but uh, basically you're blowing out your fuses so much that you just have to stop altogether to let everything, the dust sort of settle on your nervous system. And while that's happening, people don't experience any sexual arousal. And the whole goal is to reset the nervous system. So the worst thing to do is of course the thing that everybody does, which is masturbate to make sure it still works. Um, which then means of course you've not you have to start your 90 days all over again. Um, or they'll masturbate to make sure that they can get an erection and then stop short of orgasming, which, you know, edging is also a contributor of erectile dysfunction. I think some people think they're making it stronger. They're looking at it as like a workout, but ultimately you're just confusing your libido. So once people go through all the things that they've done to try and, for lack of a better word, like help themselves, fix themselves before coming to therapy, and you get an assessment and overall understanding of what these things are, uh, where do you go in treatment? Like what types of things have you done with clients in treatment that have been effective for uh, sex addiction or working with someone with sexual abuse? Well, in my line of work, uh, where I'm currently at in the residential treatment, because it's primarily a trauma treatment center, it's very rare for me to get a sex addict that's not also a trauma survivor. So um, ultimately, by validating the fact that part of what this addiction, part of the problem the addictive behaviors are solving is the distress from the unresolved trauma. So by going in and resolving the trauma first, and giving them an opportunity to be um, in a safe environment, uh, you know, to either break down or to do their assignments or not have to worry about shaving for work, you know, because they've had a bad day or whatever. Give me some examples. So I had a client present um, with, you know, obviously trauma and um, what she was calling sexual anorexia. Um, which, you know, like an eating disorder, anorexia is a, an absolute avoidance of any kind of sexuality to the point where it feels like a phobia. And part of, you know, part of our work was figuring out what came up for her when the topic of sex came up. What was she actually experiencing somatically, emotionally, what was actually happening and what was the common denominator of the triggers. And uh, it turns out that, you know, I think I was talking about this a little earlier, the things that turn her on were so embedded in her early traumas and she was so ashamed from being turned on by these things. You know, she identified as a feminist and a social justice warrior and, mm -hmm. you know, the idea of these, um, these perpetrations sort of serving in her sexuality made her feel um, perpetually victimized. It made her feel like she was still sick, she was still broken, there's something wrong with her. So she was just avoiding sexuality at all costs because um, to have either fulfilling sex that makes her feel guilty or to have unfulfilling sex that also makes her feel guilty because she's not doing the things she wants to do. It's just easier to not have sex. And there's an element of re-traumatization that happens when you are trying not to think about something while you're having sex. It still feels anxiety 
producing. And then, of course, being anxious during sex is less arousing. And then you've now created for yourself another mini trauma. So once we realized that this was all about shame, helping her conceptualize of the fact that um, she doesn't have to be ashamed of what turns her on. And, you know, as she identified as a social justice warrior and a feminist, um, the easiest way to help her do this was to say, you know, what you are essentially asking of yourself is conversion therapy, which is the therapy now illegal that they used to use to try to um, make gay people straight. And it's unethical and it's horrifying. And she knew that. So when I said essentially what you are saying is what turns you on is not okay. And you want to be someone who's turned on by different things. Does that sound like it's in alignment with your value system? And when she was able to see it that way, um, she was able to sort of change her narrative around her sexuality and sort of embrace role play and kink in a safe way to be able to experience um, some of the things that she considers arousing in a way that did not leave her feeling re-victimized. You know, with everything that you've talked about uh, today, Bryn, I think that's it. You know, there's a common theme that I hear coming up, and that is that a lot of the work that we do with individuals with sex addiction or who's been abused or who have some sexual issues, that it really has nothing to do with sex. Yeah, it, it, that's that's a great way of putting it. We do all the work around set around sex to then make sex once again, something relevant to their life, healthy for their life, you know, a choice they could make in their life. We do a bunch of work around that in terms of their shame, the fear they have, safety issues, guilt, all these things in order to get to that centerpiece, right? Yep. Um, how often do you think you get to that centerpiece to really where you've worked with a client and you really feel like that uh, you've been able to really accomplish something. You know, it's interesting. There are layers. So for whatever reason, um, you know, clients may not be able to stay as long as others. And even if a client leaves treatment without, um, you know, recovering every single repressed memory and, you know, whistle and Dixie or twirling in their new self-acceptance, um, just, just by virtue of seeing that you're not the only person that's experienced this. And, and that's part of the magic of, of doing healing at a residential level of care is watching a room of 40 people all look at each other astonished that they've all gone through the same thing because each of them thought they were the only one. And once that sinks in, that not only are you not this weird, crazy person, but that people know your secrets and they still want to play volleyball with you. Um, it's incredibly powerful and it starts to, um, it, it plants a seed. It plants a seed where everything you thought you knew about how awful you are might not be true. And even if you're not able to resolve everything in that immediate, um, level of care, it opens a door. It opens a door to the idea that, um, it, things may not be how I think they are and things don't have to be as painful as they've always been. There's hope. Yeah. If there's anything that you could um, change or anything that you think that needs to be added to this area of trauma work um, surrounding sex, what do you think that would what do you think would improve this area of trauma work? I think that we need to address how taboo sexuality is in general 
and be more comfortable having conversations with regards to kink because it seems to be um, there is a lot of, you know, what we know about sexual trauma and what I've seen in relation to its connection to, um, you know, the choice to live an alternative lifestyle sexually or to be involved in a, you know, a BDSM group or um, polyamory, all of these things. Um, we have to honor the fact that people respond in different ways and there are so many, um, there's so much misinformation and there's so much myth and there's so much intolerance and, um, you know, maybe even guileless naivety on the part of, um, on everybody, cultural teachers, parents, clinicians. Um, I think having open and honest conversations about sexuality in a way that is respectful and not you know, in an attempt to turn us on. You know, anytime we're exposed to sex in this culture, it's to sell us something. So the, anytime people are talking about sex, the goal is to turn us on so that we buy whatever it is is being sexualized. Or it's moment. to guilt you, shame you, and make you feel like yes. this is dirty. Yes, yes. and, and if, you, if you buy this product or join this church, then there's hope for you after all. Um, but yeah, I think I think looking at sexuality in terms of... Um, almost clinical detachment, um, you know, oh, fascinating, you do that, let's talk about that. Making it less taboo to talk about in general and, make, and making it not pornographic. Um, talking about sex is not pornographic. Um, and now I think that's sort of, you know, anytime people talk about sex, they feel like they're doing something wrong. And so they don't talk about it. I think that that is a great place to end this. Um, and I'm glad that we were able to have this talk today about sex. Uh, thank you for joining me. And um, as always, if there are any questions, um, please feel free to drop it in the comments or send us um, a message. And um, remember that um, there's a lot of healing to be done in many different areas of trauma, and sex is one of them. So be well and be balanced. That is the Trauma Perspective. <laughs>